Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing this on the social media site of your choice. How can the lessons of history help us make good investment decisions? The media is filled with stories of corporate greed. Is it still safe to invest in American corporations today? Joining us is Professor James Hoops, who is a professor of history and business ethics at Babson's College, author of the book Corporate Dreams, Big Business in America Democracy from the Great Depression to the Great Recession. And he's going to share with us what we can do as investors to make sure we're making the right decision. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. In today's world, we've had a lot of talk about corporate greed and corruption, and a lot of times people have a lot of fear about even investing today. Can you just kind of give us an overall timeline of big business and how corporate cultures have evolved over time, and why did you choose to start with the Great Depression and your studies of business and corporate environments? To reverse order there, the Great Depression seems like a good place to start the story because of the sort of parallel to the Great Recession that we're living through now. It's still going on in a way, even though the economists tell us that growth has started, a lot of people are still hurting very badly. So the timeline seemed to work because it brought us from one point where corporations seem to have failed us to another point where many people think corporations have failed us. Can you kind of give us a summary of your book, which again is Big Business and American Democracy from the Great Depression to the Great Recession. Just kind of summarize for us the history. Sure. So the main idea of the book is that there's a tension between corporations and democracy that we don't recognize often enough. Corporations are top-down organizations and democracy is bottom-up. We don't like to admit that fact too much in the corporate world. America prides itself on being a free country with democratic power, and that's fair enough. But it wasn't very long after the founding fathers wrote the Constitution that these corporations sprang up and became the most successful way of doing business. And so there's a natural tendency to try to gloss over the fact that we live in this society that has really two kinds of power, and we focus a lot on the political system and not enough on the corporate system. My view is that citizens need to understand the corporate world just as much as they need to understand the political world and get a good grasp of what's going on there and understand what they think about it. I think one of the things that investors can do is to be a big help in that regard because they've got a good start on understanding the corporate world in terms of earnings and profitability. And it's very important, of course, for them to examine also the ethical questions and chances for abuse of power. They can be a leader in educating Americans in general about corporate life. What do you see with the ethics in the corporate world and how that might have evolved, either good, bad, stayed the same, from the Depression up till modern times? I know the reporting of problems and ethics in the business world right now with the Internet and everything, it seems like the whole sky is falling. But I know when you read history, there have always been ethical dilemmas sometimes when you're looking at corporations and government. What did you find? Well, it's true, of course, there have always been corporate scandals and lots of bad corporate behavior. There is a difference, I think, in that people are trying much harder these days than they did, say, in the era of Jay Gould and Diamond Jim Brady and people like that in the 19th century who were really the robber barons. Crooks is the only word for it, and they got away with lots of 
practices that were subsequently made illegal, and so they were sort of crooks before the laws caught up with them. The situation today is that there are an extraordinary number of well-meaning people who really want to do very well. Of course, there are some bad people who try to make the system work in only their favor. But in between those two groups, the small group of really bad people and the huge group of people who really mean well, there's also a sort of naive group that tries to make corporate life seem a little better and a little more democratic than it can really be, to come back to the point I made at the start of our talk. So we have some ideas that I think are very dangerous ideas, ideas about, for instance, values-based leadership. The democratic notion is that we should suspect power and watch our leaders very carefully because power can corrupt. But in the corporate world, there's a lot of talk about trust, about leading by values. These ideas are well-meaning, but they seem to me very dangerous because there's a kind of reverse logic that can set in where a CEO can think, well, leadership is about ethics and values. I'm a leader. I must be a pretty darn good person. That's the kind of temptation then that leads one to think, it's okay for me to do this because I mean well and I'm doing the right thing. And so I think you find that kind of mentality in a lot of the corporate scandals. Ken Lay of Exxon was a guy who really believed that he was leading by values. So he had some of that naivete. So I think we need to get away from that idea of leaders leading by values. And we need to have a lot more emphasis on the fact that we need to watch corporate chiefs and investors certainly need to do that. But we also need to create a mentality in which the corporate chiefs themselves are a little more on guard against the temptations of power and are aware of the dangers they face. And again, that's something that investors can help do by looking for the right kind of humility instead of arrogance in the people leading the companies they invest in. What values have changed the most in corporate America today? I think the one that has changed greatly is the idea of leadership. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, at the start of the Great Depression anyway, what leadership meant was that you were a kind of a dominating person who had the courage to step out front, bite off the end of a cigar and say, okay, here's the way we're going to do it. Today, the way in which leadership is valued is the softer style of leadership that talks about values, inclusion, bottom-up management, and those kinds of things. And so I'd say that the really accurate view of leadership probably lies somewhere between those two extremes, that the leaders do have to be pretty tough and strong people willing to take a stand and say, okay, enough debate, here's a decision, and we're going to take it. We need that in corporate leaders. But we also need people who are really wide awake and alert to the problems that the people who work for them face and how they can help those people and help them achieve their goals as well as the company to achieve its goals. There are lots of corporate leaders out there that operate that way. But the kind of ideology of corporate leadership that's out there is a little unrealistic and emphasizes the soft side because we'd like to make ourselves believe that corporations are a little more gentler than they can be. Now, I know our focus is on the bigger businesses as you're talking, and I know Tony and I, we're in a small community, and we serve a lot of smaller business owners. And one thing that I see is in the small business culture, it seems like a lot of the business owners that we deal with generally have a genuine desire to help their neighbors. And as a result, they got into business in a way that they could do that. 
in corporate America and big corporate America, you're dealing with customers that are so far removed from you where maybe that ethic issue can be a little bit more difficult because they're not going to church on Sundays with their customers. Do you find that there's a big difference or is this something that's kind of general from big companies to small companies? You have some bad apples in the barrel across the board or is it more bigger companies have bigger issues with the ethics thing? Well, I think the answer is yes to both your ideas. I think, of course, there are some small businesses that have got some bad apples running them, too. But I also agree with your other point that because the small business person is living right there in the community and dealing face-to-face with neighbors, they're pretty careful not to do much harm. You really don't want to hurt the little kid who lives next door. But when you're dealing in a multinational corporation, there's a concept called tangible gain and abstract harm. If you're going to make money by it, that's the tangible gain. And if the person getting hurt is a faceless person on the other side of the world, it's a little bit easier to strike that balance in a way that favors profit over the good that should be done to other people. So that's a problem with big business. It's there. You can't make that challenge go away. The challenge is always going to be there. But we need, I think, better education to make leaders aware of the challenges they face in big business. An interesting idea would be to organize some forums where small business might take a lead in explaining to big business some of their social responsibilities. Is there some examples, maybe, Jim, you can think of of companies or industries that you would say have violated the big business ethics code in the most negative way? I think there are plenty of examples. One that comes to mind right off the top of my head few years ago, the Bank of America purchase of Merrill Lynch right at the height of the financial crisis of 07 and 08. And that was something that the CEO of Bank of America, Ken Lewis, had long wanted to do. And he thought of it as a high point of his career. He wanted to acquire that company. Turned out as they did their due diligence in investigating Merrill Lynch after they'd signed a tentative agreement to buy, that they found all kinds of stuff that Merrill Lynch was paying huge bonuses to its money managers, even though the company was losing money. They found out the company was losing much more than they'd been led to believe. And yet Ken Lewis, his ego was so involved in this to a degree that he not only went ahead and made the purchase of Merrill Lynch, but he kept back from shareholders some of the information about the size of the bonuses that were being paid, some of the the size of the losses that he knew about. And so shareholders followed his advice to go through with the merger, and then all of this stuff came out. Again, I don't think it's a question of the guy was trying to rob or cheat anyone. He had too much vanity that he was trying to gratify. But it was still a very, very unethical thing that he did, keeping that information back from shareholders. The kind of education that we need in ethics is to say to people, those are the real dangers, the places where you're a well-meaning person, you think you're doing the right thing, but you better think not just twice, but three or four or half a dozen times about whether this is really the right thing to do. So we need to get a little more humility into those corporate managers and a little less moral self-confidence. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, let's kind of build on that blatant example that you provided of certainly such a public situation and talk a little bit more about how do you think that public attitudes now have changed towards big business, especially with the media being able to bring everything to everyone's access so freely and so quickly. So please stay tuned. 
This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your Real Wealth Advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks before investing. Real Wealth Advisors offer security and investment advisory services through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and registered investment advisor, P.O. Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. The purpose of this message is to stop your heart for just a few seconds. If you weren't here, what would happen to your family? Would there be enough money for them to have the kind of life you want them to? People with life insurance know the answer. Life insurance isn't for the people who die. It's for the people who live. A reminder from the Life and Health Insurance Foundation for Education, a nonprofit organization. Welcome back as we continue our conversation today with James Hoops, who's the Distinguished Professor of History and Business Ethics at Babson College. And we were talking before the break about just the perception of big business today and ethics. Let's kind of dig a little bit deeper now on what you think the public's attitude is and how it has changed toward big business. Well, the public right now has a very negative image of big business, especially of the financial industry, but not only of the financial industry. The public sees that three-quarters of the population of the United States has not participated in the economic gains that have been made in the last 25 years. The gains have gone to the top 25%, or as the rhetoric has it, even the top 1%. The reasons for that are very complex. It's not greed alone by any means, but there is certainly some corporate greed involved in that. There's also a notion that I'm a CEO and I'm providing tremendous value and I'm entitled to these kinds of gains. That's very different from the attitude of CEOs 50 years ago who did not think of themselves as people who were entitled to such huge amounts of money on the basis of the leadership they were providing. So I think that's a big change. What people really resent is not just the fact that this huge amount of money is being made at the top of corporate America, but they resent the entitlement that's there at the top that feels that it's perfectly all right for those people to be making that kind of money when a generation or two ago their counterparts had no such idea. Well, let's figure out, okay, where do we go from here with clients that are looking to invest? I know when we read the headlines, it sometimes makes people a little bit skittish about participating in corporate profits, which is done by owning those companies. I think we've seen with the way the media is bringing this news down, one thing they don't emphasize as much is some of the reforms that have been done to prevent some of these abuses. I think back to the Enron days where financial statements, the CEOs could sign anything with no recourse, whether or not the information was accurate or not, to now they're almost taking a fiduciary role where they are responsible for what's on the line and they can be criminally prosecuted if the information is not accurate when they sign those financial statements. So a lot of positives have come out of it when those abuses become so abusive that the regulators take a look at it to help protect those investors 
Is it safe today for people to get back into investing again? Should they be really concerned about some of these stories where people have maybe gone off the deep end a little bit with their corporate greed? Well, first of all, I would like to say that even though the corporation is subject to terrible abuses, it's also important to recognize that it is, after democratic government, the corporation is our single most important social institution, and it accounts for the fact that the developed nations are as wealthy as they are. The corporation is a great wealth generator, and if you aspire to be wealthy, there's probably no better way for most people to do it than to invest in corporations. They are great wealth generators. Most of them are doing it in honest ways. So I think one need not have moral scruples about investing in corporations in general. Of course, one wants to avoid the bad apples. Enron went from over $100 a share to $0.15 a share before it finally just went belly up. And you don't want to ride one of those down. So I think you're quite right that there's lots of new protections. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act that made accounting more reliable, made the statements in financial reports more reliable. The Dodd-Frank Act has taken some very important steps in making the financial industry more accountable. So those are all good things. People talk about doing your due diligence when you invest. How do you do that? Well, thanks to some of these changes, as you say, CEOs and other managers are pretty darn careful to not get themselves exposed to legal problems. And they do that by being as open as they can be about the issues the company faces. Let's put it this way, as open as they have to be. So where are you going to find out? Well, you want to go to the risk analysis in the 10K reports and look there, because as much good cheer as there may be on the front page of the annual report, back there at the end of the 10K, when management lists the risks that it faces, they really list the risks that they face because they don't want to be accused of covering anything up these days. So you can do good due diligence. And then I think there's a lot to be said for just trying to get some exposure to the people running the company. You can do that by listening in on earnings conference calls with the financial analysts. You can do it by seeing these people on TV when they're interviewed. And you can also get some exposure to the company. If it's a retail company, go into the store. And you can tell often whether this is a place that you would really want to trust with your money. If a place is well run, there's a good chance that it's also being ethically run. So I won't use names of these companies, but there are a couple of companies I know that are competing, and I have two of their stores within walking distance of my house, and I can walk in one of them and I can see that the floor isn't swept, that the merchandise is littered around the shelves, and that the place is just unkempt. I really don't want to be investing in that company because I think it's not only that it's being badly run, but if it's being badly run, then there's a chance that it's also not being honestly run. You go in the other place, you see how shipshape it is. There's certainly a better chance that those folks are managing the company in an ethical sense as well as a practical sense. Well, there's clearly a lot of different ways that you can analyze a company. I'm glad to hear you say that there's still plenty of opportunity within corporate America, and it is truly the greatest place to grow wealth. What I think the consumer needs to know is sometimes some of the technical forms of research that you mentioned might be a little overwhelming for the general consumer to really kind of dig their teeth into. So it's really still important today to partner with an advisor who should be closer to this on a daily basis to help guide you in not only establishing your goals, but then determining what you clearly stated there 
Enron as an example. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Consider diversification, understanding what your goals and objectives are, and working with a professional who can help you kick the tires of these companies, other than, like you mentioned, physically walking in and seeing the difference between the way two companies are managed. Not everyone has that luxury, and here's an opportunity to employ professional guidance to help you through this complicated world. Can you tell us, Jim, have we learned our lesson yet? Do you think regulation now is starting to become so aggressive as a reaction? Is it impeding corporations going forward in the future? I think that we will hear that from corporations. To give you one recent example, uh, the banks and their credit cards were engaged in really terrible practices of making profits by the banks and their bank cards. A person withdrew $25 and it was an overdraft they'd get hit with a $25 fine, and maybe it was a debit card, and later that day they'd buy something, and the bank wouldn't tell them. The bank should have put a limit on it and closed down, but instead the bank's very happy to get another $25 fine for an overdraft charge. So the banks were making huge profits at that, and the Congress changed the law and stamped some of that out, and as a result, corporate profits fell. And so now some of the banks are saying, well, we have to take other steps because regulation is costing us money. Well, that regulation was actually costing them money that they shouldn't have been making. We need to be very clear that we should not always believe the idea that regulation is hurting business in negative ways. It may sometimes hurt business, but it hurts them because maybe the business was doing something it should not have been doing. On the other hand, of course, regulation can be overdone. I had a case this morning in my own personal life where regulation had created a bureaucratic problem for me, and I ended up having to fill out three or four forms that I wished I didn't have to fill out, and I think were kind of unnecessary. So yeah, regulation hurts. Of course, the regulators will get it wrong some of the time, but on the whole, I think we've probably done right to tighten things up, and I think investors should feel a little better about Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank. I appreciate that. Hey, Jim, we're just going to sum up with mentioning your book again that that's recently released, I understand, and it can be found on Amazon.com, again, called Corporate Dreams, Big Business and American Democracy, From the Great Depression to the Great Recession. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week, and tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your real wealth advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information will be helpful to a friend or family member, just click the Forward to a Friend button. This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your real wealth advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks before investing. Real wealth advisors offer security and investment advisory services through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and registered investment advisor, P.O. Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've got additional information and links in our show notes, which you can click on to learn more. 
If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week.